Social media gives writers the illusion of control and when it all boils down to it, especially if you're traditionally published, there's a lot that goes on that you have no control over. So you've got control over the quality of your book and so that is your triumph. Mm. That's what you've got to keep in mind when things are tough, that you're a writer and no one can take that away from you. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone and welcome to a very special edition of Rights for Women. This episode was originally going to air at the end of June as the new release feature author episode for June, but the book that we're talking about, which is Sisters of the Resistance by Christine Wells, and I'm, I'm going to sing its praises very loudly in just a minute, was released in the US in June, but it isn't being released here until July 9 in Australia. And that whole story is one I'm actually going to be talking to Christine about as well. So we decided to actually hold this episode off until after the Australian release because we wanted to make sure that Australian readers were able to access the book and be able to celebrate the release of this book with Christine. So by the time that you're hearing this, the book will actually have already been released in Australia, so it's now out worldwide. And I'm really looking forward to talking to Christine today, not only about the book, but about her whole writing story and writing process as well. I actually put a call out on the Rights for Women Facebook community group page for questions and quite a few came in. So by the time I combined those with my own questions for Christine about the book and a few other things, we've got quite a long list. So before I actually talk to Christine, let me tell you a little bit about her. Christine Wells writes historical fiction featuring strong, fascinating women. A bookworm from the time she could read, Christine devoured every novel she could get her hands on, begging her parents to take her to three different lending libraries and using her other family members' library cards so she could borrow more and more books. And I think there's quite a few of us who could relate to that. She never considered a career as an author, however, because authors were magical beings, not flesh and blood mortals like her. After graduating from university with a law degree, Christine worked in a large city firm specialising in corporate mergers and acquisitions. She might still be a lawyer if she hadn't accepted a challenge from a friend to try her hand at writing a novel. The minute she began to weave that story, she fell in love with writing fiction. Christine has gone on to publish 14 novels about periods ranging from Georgian England to post-World War II France, her most recent book being uh, Sisters of the Resistance, but other historical fiction and crime slash mystery books, including The Wife's Tale, The Traitor's Girl, The Juliet Code, and now Sisters of the Resistance. Passionate about helping other writers learn the craft and business of writing fiction, Kristen enjoys mentoring and teaching workshops whenever her schedule permits. 
She has sold over 180,000 books worldwide, and her books have been translated variously into German, Russian, Japanese, Spanish, Dutch, and Brazilian Portuguese. Sisters of the Resistance is published by HarperCollins, and as I said, first came out in New York. So there's so much that I'd like to talk to Christine about today. And let's get on to the conversation on the Convo Couch. Christine, welcome to the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Thanks so much for having me, Pam. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about this book. You will have seen, I know, on uh, social media, I've been singing the book's praises. I have to say, I absolutely devoured it. It's um. It's a book that just, you know, every now and then you just come across a book where you start reading and you literally can't put it down. And <laughs> this was one of them. So, oh, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. There's so much that we can talk about to do with the book. And I do, we do have lots of questions. So, we'll get going. But before we launch into talking about the book itself and about the release and everything, can you tell listeners what it's actually about? Right. Well, Sisters of the Resistance, which I say very carefully because it's got so many S's in it, uh, is about two sisters who live in wartime Paris in World War II, 1944, and they're drawn into the resistance movement by Catherine Dior, who is the sister of the famous fashion designer Christian Dior. So each sister is involved in a different way. They don't know that the other is involved and things progress from there. Yeah, it's such a well-set-up storyline and the two sisters, of course, are quite different women and different characters with, you know, different motivations and everything. But it's interesting the way that you pull all that together. So really want to talk about that. But I read in the back of the book in the notes that um, you stumbled across a story about Catherine Dior in, I think it was in Jezebel, 2017, when you were doing some reading. And it was interesting because I read uh, Natasha Lester's book, The Paris Secret, last year. And, of course, Catherine Dior comes up in that storyline too. So it seems to be almost something that's sort of a bit in the zeitgeist, Catherine Dior, and, and stories about the resistance. Yes, I think certainly Catherine is and also Dior themselves have really taken her, the the uh, new designer there has been making, creating lines and clothing and, and a handbag that's all inspired by Catherine. I think she's really coming into her own now. But I hadn't heard that story before 2017 when I read it. And I just looked at it and I thought, how have I never heard this? And I tried to find any books on it and there weren't at that stage. So I thought, well, so, you know, I really want to write about it. And Natasha had the same idea at roughly the same time, I think. So, so we have both dealt with quite different aspects of Catherine's journey So if you read them both, you won't be covering the same ground twice. I loved Natasha's book. It was just fantastic. And I must admit, I finished my book before I read hers and I was reading it thinking, oh, this is so good. (laughs) So yeah, but Natasha was kind enough to read mine and give me a lovely quote for it. So we've had chats about how difficult it was to find anything on Catherine. And that's why I didn't make her the central character because I could have made it up, uh, but I felt 
that I really wanted to stay as true to what we knew uh, as possible. So every event that really concerns her in the book pretty much happened. I won't spoil it by telling you what didn't. You can read the author's note. But yeah, yeah, she's a very interesting character. And there's actually going to be uh, a book, a nonfiction book coming out about her later in the year. So that'll be really interesting to read. Yeah, fantastic. Well, you don't have anything to worry about. I think, as you say, both you and Natasha have have taken you know, the central idea about resistance and women working in the resistance, but gone in, in quite different directions. And of course, each story is unique. I definitely enjoyed both of them equally. So yeah, well done to, to both of you. <laughs> so once you got that initial idea, you know, about Catherine Dior, and we're quite intrigued, obviously, by this whole idea of women working in the resistance how did you then develop that? Because it's such a, a big story, isn't it, really? There must have been a lot of research. And then how do you take that and distill it into a fictional story? Yes, it's a little bit difficult to unpick how it all happens because it's all builds on everything else. So I, I don't know if I have this you know, fail-safe method I can mm. impart, but the backbone of the story was Catherine's story so I would do a timeline and I'd fill everything in I could possibly find out about her and I actually had to do a lot of detective work I have a friend who's a university librarian and she helped me with some of the research and she said I can't believe no one has written a dissertation on her you know she searched worldwide databases and could find nothing so a lot of it was saying okay well this was the gang who arrested her. Let's find out about them. And then I found a book that was in French <laughs> and uh-huh. that, that talked about how Catherine was arrested and her whole network was rounded up at that time. And so, you know, little snippet here, little snippet there. And there were stories about she used to stay with her brother, Christian Dior, in Paris and there were strange comings and goings at night according to some people you know possibly fugitives or agents or they didn't really specify so I thought all right well if I don't want to make her the protagonist can I look at who might have helped her and possibly the concierge might be an interesting one to choose so that's where Gabby formed and then I thought well I want to put in all of the fashion because I just you know that's all the time when just before Kath, uh, Christian Dior was established Maison Dior and his new fashion house so that all tied in beautifully so I thought well I, I can't have a concierge be the mannequin so I'm going to have a younger sister and, and the two of them contrast in personalities as well because Yvette's very feisty and impetuous and Gabby just wants to get through the war with everybody safe and she's not really interested in uh, undertaking any resistance work until it becomes personal. And I, I think so many women will join the fight when it becomes personal. I love the way that you develop each of those storylines for Gabby and Yvette, you know, and as you say, they are quite different characters and and not always that close in the story as sisters either, but their relationship and the way that that is threaded through the bigger story of the war is, is really interesting and I, I love the way that the events that they were involved in impacted differently on each of them. 
Yes, I think so. I think that Yvette is the one who goes out and has adventures and possibly makes more mistakes and Gabby's very careful, but she still takes a huge risk. And in that sense, for Gabby, it's almost a bigger step to put her life in danger than it is for Yvette, who probably thinks less about the consequences. Yeah, very true. And Christine, you're quite adept at writing dual timelines, you know, multiple timelines and and points of view. How did it work this time around for you? Did that evolve fairly obviously into a a, a double character storyline? I think it did. We the choosing timelines that were so close together and having the same people in both was something I hadn't done before. And so every dual timeline is slightly different for me and brings up new challenges. The challenge when they're different people is that you keep having to explain the the prior timeline in the present one. And unless you have a really good device to do that with, it can become a little bit you know, difficult to, to make it interesting all the time. But yeah, I think having them so close had its challenges too, because I had to take care that the reader wasn't confused. And I tried very hard in the 1944 timeline, it's summer and it's very hot. And I say, you know, I talk about the heat and the thunderstorms and all of that. And in the 47 one, it's very cold. And so there are all these little tricks that I've tried to use to distinguish each timeline because I know when I'm reading, I don't always look at the dateline. I always put it in, but I know that readers, you know, skip over that. So, yeah, there are tricks to making each one distinct. Mm. And, of course, even though they are fairly close in time, it's quite a different setting because the 1944, it's in the middle of the war. Yes. And the 1947 is post-war and you, you do you know, have different things in the setting and in the environment and, of course, in in what the characters are doing at that time too, which suggests to us straight away in that section, you know, oh, now we're in 1947 or now we're in 1944. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah. I mean, you never, ever, I mean, very rarely do you ever get 100% reviews saying I had no problems with the switch in timeline. Somebody will always say they were confused, so... I, I think that's just a bit part and parcel of this genre. Yeah. Uh, you can't always please everybody. <laughs> Every genre, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so apart from the two girls, there's this. There's quite a big cast of characters. The girl's mother is there in the background and then there's different tenants within the building. There's Catherine Dior, her friend Lillian, and then, of course, there's Vida and, and there's a whole cast of characters many of whom are based on real people and some of whom are fictional. How did you go about working out that balance between knowing, you know, or deciding which of the the real world characters, if you like, to include in the storyline and then how to bring in other fictional characters? I I think it was basically what I wanted to do with them. So Vidar had, I, I would have loved to have made him the real person that he's based on. But the real person he's based on had a wife that he married in the middle of the war 
and I wanted to make Vida Yvette's love interest. So I decided I couldn't really do that. <laughs> I couldn't fictionalise <laughs> it quite that much. So he is a, a fellow that his name was Posh Pastor, which he was Baron von Kampferfeld. And so he was an Austrian who actually didn't want to join the Nazis and was imprisoned for, for refusing to fight or his whole uh, battalion or whatever you call it refused to, to join. So he, he is a character who I just fell in love with him when I was researching and I w wanted to base Vidar on. So that decision was almost made for me. If, mm. if they were just cameo roles and I wasn't really changing anything about their particular story, I used the real person. So Christian is a character. There's Madame de Turquoim, Turquoim. I, I'm not quite sure how they pronounce that in French, but uh, she was the uh, chef de cabine. She was the, the in charge of all the models, so she was real. Who else? Jack, the Gabby's love interest, was completely fictional, but Lillian was real, and she did she did help people escape from France. So, and she had a Swedish diplomat who helped her do that. So that part of the story was real, and Lillian was a, a great friend of Catherine's throughout their lives. So that was really nice to be able to use her. It must have been quite a challenge, was it? How does it compare to previous experiences with that historical fiction writer? I've based most of my historical fiction characters on real people, but I've steered clear of using real people except in cameo roles similar to Christian Dior. So, yes, it's much harder and I was whining to my agent about it. <laughs> and she said, you can't defame the dead person, make it up. <laughs> But, but she was only joking, really. Um, I, so I made that decision. A lot of people do just make, make it up and it's fiction after all. So, but it, it was a lot more difficult to use a real person and to feel like I was doing her justice and I wasn't trying to sugarcoat anything or I, I did leave out some parts that I just didn't have the information about mm. to, to write about and I wasn't writing from her point of view. So I couldn't send Gabby and Yvette along with her at one point where she departs the story. So it wasn't appropriate anyway to tell that part mm. for, for this particular novel. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about your writing process. I want to come back to different aspects of the book in a minute, but while we're talking about all this, in terms of, you know, you've got the research and you start to develop your ideas and the story starts to form, are you someone that then goes ahead and writes the first draft fairly quickly and then focuses more on revision or how does that all work for you, Christine? I would love. I, uh, please <laughs> do, do what I say, not what I do. I have a terrible, terrible process that I have had for many books and I can't seem to change it. I research a lot. I just find out everything I possibly can and I write a timeline. I've all, Usually I've done enough research to do an outline of the novel to sell the book. So I don't tend to do massive amounts of research until I know the book is sold. Okay. Uh, and so this one... I wrote the, the entire book 
for this one, but I had the, I wanted to do the outline for my agent. So this, the book I'm writing now was sold on the outline. So my process is to work out the timeline. I use Scrivener. If you know um, Scrivener, yep. for people who don't know, it's a writing software and it allows you to have a virtual board where you can put little index cards and map out the scenes that you're going to write. And I find that very, very helpful, although I don't tend to look at it too much when when I go to write. So then I procrastinate and procrastinate and have suffer much anxiety and whine to my friends and that goes you on. You said just quite. like me. <laughs> so, so I'm telling you, don't do what I do, please. And then there comes a point where I know that if I don't, actually get down to brass tacks. I'm not going to meet my deadline. And then I really go absolutely hell for leather and and write it very quickly. And then I go back and fill in more detail because I tend to rush through and I check all my facts. I leave a lot of hashes throughout the, the draft and I put hashes next to things that I need. I know I need to check. And then I revise if I've got time or, I mean, I'll fill in all the blanks, but sometimes what goes to my editor is a little bit rougher than I'd like. And then while she is reading it, I will do another revision. <laughs> I hope she never sees this. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. And, and so then then it's a matter of when I get her revisions, I'll incorporate those as well. And hopefully by that stage, it's really polished and ready to go. So Mm. that's my process. It's great to hear that you're not super organised and that you do procrastinate. I love it. (laughs) No, Natasha Lester is a book ahead. And so I I wish I had a bit of her in me, but it doesn't seem to be that way. Well, like you say, this has been your process for book after book and I think we all just have our own way of working and we'd like to change it in many ways, but that's how we work, isn't it? Yes, well, I I vow every time that it will change. (laughs) (laughs) I know, me too. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about to do with the book itself, Christine, is the setting, of course, is in Paris and, you know, any book that's set in Paris, I'm I'm all over because I just love Paris. I've been there numerous times and anything that's going to take me back there yeah. is wonderful. But I mentioned in the intro of that the setting is so beautifully described and the streets of Paris, even though it's in wartime, I got such a great sense of the place. And I just wanted to read, I've just got a couple of little excerpts for people to to hear, and I was going to ask you about how you go about getting such beautiful details. So I hope you don't mind me reading these couple of short little bits. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so the first one is Gabby coming uh, into up to the house of Dior. It says, it was like stepping into an expensive cloud, she thought, peering around her. Monsieur Dior had outfitted his domain as elegantly as any of his beautiful mannequins. The walls were the most exquisite shade of pearl grey, the mouldings picked out in white like piped icing on a cake. Swathes of grey satin at the windows whispered of luxury. Crystal chandeliers and brass light fittings shimmered and gleamed. Everywhere there were flowers, white lily of the valley, Monsieur's favourite, sweet peas, roses, blue delphiniums. 
The beauty was almost overwhelming and somehow utterly right. And through it all, the salons breathed a new fragrance, a most exquisite scent, fresh and floral. The one Christian had named after Catherine, he had called it Miss Dior. So that, that's the first one, which I just love. I can smell mm. that and just see the flowers. <laughs> and then the other one is a, an outdoor setting. The Rue de Falberg Saint Honore was lined with tall white buildings with red awnings over their doors. Many of Monsieur Leilong's rival couturiers were to be found on this street. And even though several ateliers lay dormant now, the air still reeked of luxury. The street was narrow and she had to concentrate as she weaved in and out of traffic and pedestrians but she could never pass the empty president's palace without a pang of shame. The French government had abandoned the city to the Germans and fled in the night, leaving Parisians like her family to carry on as best they could under the new regime. A shout and a scuffle further up the street caught her attention and her chest tightened. What this time? Since the Normandy landings, the Boches had become even more brutal than before. She pedalled slowly toward the commotion. There were tall men in black uniforms on the sidewalk across the road. Gestapo's stomach turned over. Raids usually took place under cover of darkness. It was unusual to see a disturbance in a genteel street at this time of day. And then it goes on to describe what happens next. But it's interesting, Christine, I'm, I'm teaching at Australian Writers' Centre and this morning working on some online writing with students and talking about blending these different elements of the writing you know that this bringing in the senses blending the, the narrative with the thought and the dialogue can you talk a little bit about that process for you and how that all comes together probably I'm imagining in the revision part yes I am very terse with my first drafts as I mentioned so a lot of the time I'm going back and filling things in I, I think that one of the Maison Dior was uh, one I put in at the start because I found this description and I just loved it. So that went in and it it's really gives an atmosphere. But usually I'm having to fill in details later and I teach workshops too. Mm. And what I always say is we're all too busy to be reading the screeds and screeds of, of description. In the old days, they would have pages and pages of it. And uh, it, it was all very lovely, but you are sort of wanting the story to get going. So I always think to myself, well, the character is saying this, not just some amorphous narrator uh, in my books anyway. Mm -hmm. Other people mm -hmm. might do it differently. So what's their attitude to what they're seeing? You know, do they notice anything new because a lot of the things they won't notice. I mean, you have to have a bit of leeway because you have to describe things for the reader. But I wouldn't put more than a sentence at a time that isn't something that the character is seeing and thinking about and having an opinion on. And I think, you know, there are exercises you can do where you say, well, uh, why don't you write about this room from the point of view of somebody who thinks it's in really bad taste? You know, you're going to describe things differently from someone who thinks that everything's gorgeous and pretty. So when you think about how your character is interacting with the scene and they're, what they're thinking about it, it all brings it to life even more. It's also the way that you eat get into that character's skin, isn't it? You know, having the two characters, it, it wasn't jarring for me because you do such a great job of 
creating the world the way that that particular character sees it so that while you're in that scene with that character, you're seeing things, you know, through Gabby's eyes. And then when you shift to to Yvette, she's got a different way of seeing the world and experiencing it. So I think yeah, it's a really that, good Gabby's way. Gabby's seeing the dust on the banisters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sort of thinking she might slide down them perhaps. Um, yeah. yeah, it's about the telling detail too, isn't it? It's uh, not overloading it but just a little thing here and there and a hint of what people might like, you know, Paris. There's an expectation there about the kinds of things that you'll talk about and that, as you said, a lot of people buy books set in Paris to have that transportive Mm. sort of experience. So that's lovely too. Yeah. And is that something that comes fairly naturally to you, Christine, after writing quite a few books now just knowing how much detail to put in it's one of the things that I work hard in every book I think because I love dialogue and I love action and tension and the the setting is something that I actually have to think about and go back and and fill in because often it's not there and you don't want to have talking heads so I do work hard on it. Sometimes you fall in love with your research and you really, really, really want to put something in that you found out that you thought was very cool and then, you know, you go back and you have to cut it. So kill your darlings, as they yeah. say. You get better at it, obviously, but I, I'd say it's one of the challenges I find. We've done a beautiful job, I have to say. You do come from a, a romance writing background originally. Uh, and there is a romantic threads in this book. It's not that I wouldn't say that they're the main part of the story, but they're definitely an important thread. Is that always a conscious decision for you, putting those romantic threads in, or is it something that just comes about naturally as part of the, the characters and their storyline? I think that these days it comes about naturally, and if there isn't one that comes up, I won't really worry too much about I think people like a little bit of romance and you know in everyday life most people have a romantic story but I won't worry too much if there isn't one or if I'm writing about a real person and the romance isn't really part of the journey that they're taking at that you know sometimes it's a part of their life where they're already married for example, mm. and there might well be a conflict. As I, with the book I'm writing now, she gets married fairly early on in the piece, but then the conflict comes when she can't tell her husband what she's doing because she's doing secret work for the Admiralty and the Naval Intelligence. This is the Money Penny book that I um, yep. speak about. But so... With that, it's not so much a boy-meets-girl romance, but there might be another character who has a romance. Romance to me is a particular form. So what my books have now is more of a thread. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call them romances because I consider that to be a different form of novel where the character grows and changes in response to the love interests impact on their life in my historical fiction it's the impact of an historical event that forces the change so yeah but the the background in romance I mean it's been great training and it was Mm. historical romance too so there was always historical 
elements to that. So do you consider that you have changed genres or, or shifted genres? How do you see that progression in your career in terms of your writing? I definitely have. And I, I think that all along with the romance, I was wanting to put more history in. I often wrote about historical events and I, mine was set in Regency England. So I think I was starting to move towards wanting to write straight historical fiction. And so it, it definitely is a change in genre. The Wife's Tale was not actually the, the historical part of it wouldn't have been considered to be a romance at all. And the modern storyline actually probably had more of a romantic. Well, you mentioned The Wife's Tale and, and I know you saw yesterday on the Rights <laughs> for Women community oh, Facebook group. Yeah, Leanne actually asked a question based on The Wife's Tale. So I'll read out the question. Thanks, Leanne Lovegrove, for the question. She said she's so looking forward to reading Sisters of the Resistance, but her question is, the Wife's Tale is one of my all-time favourite books. Any plans to uncover another legal mystery and write about it in a future book? And then there's a second part to the question, which I'll get to. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'd love to because you might know I'm a former lawyer many, many years ago now. So I really enjoyed writing the legal side of The Wife's Tale. It's a criminal conversation action, which is an old form of, form of action where a husband could sue his wife's lover for damages because she was his chattel and the lover had damaged the goods. Uh -huh. So, yeah, charming. So mm -hmm. she, she had no redress. She had no voice. These two men would get up in court and, you know, they would examine every little detail of this alleged affair and she would have no voice. So that was my idea for the, the wife's tale. In The Trader's Girl, there is a barrister in that as well, based on a real barrister who became an officer. And I dropped the legal theme a little bit after that because it's really difficult to find the right case and the right angle to to write about so if one comes up I would definitely do it but it, Leanne if you have any ideas let me know <laughs> <laughs> well Leanne is also do you have any tips from going from a lawyer to a writer and there was another question from my own inkwell writing group from Laura Boone who is a great fan of your work as well and asked why are so many romance writers lawyers? <laughs> oh, boy, Laura, I don't know. I would say don't give up your day job <laughs> until you're earning enough in royalties to really support yourself. But I'm, I'm not sure of your particular situation. So that aside, I think that like me, you might be very used to getting straight to the point and being very brief and concise and that's not your your mandate anymore once you're a writer you have to stop and smell the roses a bit so yeah you might be like me and have to go back and really smooth it all out and and really add in some lovely detail and prevaricate a little bit <laughs> not prevaricate no we don't want we don't want unnecessary words but we probably want to expand a bit yeah yeah 
Do you, have you come across that idea before that a lot of romance or writers in general have a legal background? Well, I think it's not really surprising because I know I did law because I loved books, I loved reading and and you can make money. <laughs> it's one of those you know disciplines that you can see a career path. And when I left my job, had all these people come up to me there was a playwright there was a romance writer there was a film director right next door to me in the next office and so yes I think it's one of those professions where people naturally gravitate towards it if they like reading Mm. there's a lot of reading you have to do and and I guess avid readers often become writers Mm. So with this book, Christine, Sisters of the Resistance, it's sold into the US first. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Okay. And you have a US agent, Kevin Lyon? Yes, that's right. Yeah, you, do you mind right. telling us how that all came about, the agent and the US sale? Oh, well, I probably need to go right back because Kevin is actually my third American agent. I think romance writers get a bad rap, but actually... They're some of the smartest, savviest writers around and very business-minded and a lot of romance writers found that before indie publishing came along, there wasn't a market for romance in Australia. It's very uh, much a mass market paperback and now ebook uh, based genre. And here, if... The publishers can't sell books in trade paperback. They really can't make a profit. I mean, there is snobbishness, true, but I think that also it's just not economically viable for them to have a romance line. So we mostly turned to the US to get traditionally published and the Romance Writers of Australia is an excellent organisation because you can do a lot of networking and and you find out about all of this and how to get into that market. And I entered the Rita Award, which is the the old name for the Romance Writers of America Award, and I won the Unpublished Manuscript Award. So in the same year, I got an agent and my first sale. So then once you're there and you, you know the agents, you, you start to know a lot of published authors, you get to know which agents are great and they're doing wonderful things for their authors because not every agent is equal and not every agent is the right agent for you. And Kevin Lyon had such a brilliant reputation. She had such a great stable of historical fiction authors and just loves the genre. She seemed to be the perfect agent for historical fiction. So I I had an editor at Penguin approach me to do The Wife's Tale. Well, not specifically that, but she said, you know, if you would like to do a Kate Morton style of book uh, rather than romance, you know, let's talk about that. So I ended up selling to her basically you know, myself. And then the problem with selling first in Australia, as you would know, is that if you give them world rights, they might do nothing with them. And if you give them world rights and then have a reversion back to you of foreign rights, 
How are you going to sell those? You need an agent to do that. And then if you have sold first in Australia, sometimes it's harder to sell rights overseas, especially to UK. So the answer for me, I thought, okay, instead of doing it this way around, I'm going to try to do it the other way around and start with the bigger market and then try to get them to sell into Australia. So that's what has happened. And, you know, I'm extremely grateful. And then Kevin has all of the foreign translation rights and she has an excellent sub-agent who's selling those. So Romanian, Hungarian and Greek have been sold so far. So, well, yeah, that's the long answer of it. <laughs> it it's sort of a process. It's really hard to start off at the top with the best agent for you for that genre. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, you've been in the game for quite a long time. When did you first start writing and publishing? I started writing around the year 2000 and it was very different then, very, very, very difficult to find out about publishing. You know, the internet was only something I had at work and there wasn't a lot around. Now there's a lot of information. And then my first book I sold in 2006. Yeah. So so, it was quite a while. Mm. Yeah. So like you say, like it's been quite a while for you to build up to the stage that you're at now. Yeah. The book's been out for a few weeks, hasn't it, in in the States? Yes, 8th of June. Mm -hmm. 8th of June. And it's doing very well. Is that right? Oh, well, I don't like to jinx it you know but it it actually has gone back a third time for a printing so everybody has a different measure of success Mm. so I am pleased I will say that yeah well what advice would you have Christine we are actually going to go in in a minute to talk on four curly questions which is for the (laughs) the Patreon uh readership my Patreon supporters that writes for women and we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the things the ins and outs of publishing there Mm -hmm. but what advice would you give to to people who are out there writing you know perhaps seeking publication and hoping to have their books traditionally published what advice would you give to them at this point Try to find the, as Susan Mallory would say, the, oh, God, I wish I had thought of it idea because I think that's really what set the Catherine Dior book apart from all the other ones I've done is it it has that wow factor that's going to draw in an agent and hopefully if it's your first book you will end up getting a substantial advance, you've got no track history. You know, I think there's this myth that there's a ladder in publishing and that you start at the bottom and you work your way up. And that's not really the case, I don't think. I think that you can start close to the top of the ladder if you've got a good book and a great book and that all comes down to your premise. Is it something that you can put into a sentence and people will go, wow, I really want to read that? They know exactly what it is. They know what genre it is. And, you know, it's like flicking through a TV guide and you see some tiny little description of something that you don't know anything about. What is going to make you want to go and spend time with that? That's what I think people should think about. And 
also if you're a debut author you think you've got no power but actually debuts are shiny and new and you know publishers go wild for debuts much harder to get a publisher interested if you're a mid-list author and you've got to really show them that this new idea is going to shoot you to the stratosphere it's much easier for them to take something completely new package it and send it out there uh, to excite people. So, yeah. I think that's really good advice. I mean, there's both sides, isn't there? There's like it's great to be the new shiny debut author, but there's also, you know, Natasha recently had a post on about endurance and how, yeah. of course, you know, she's she's her books are going just gangbusters worldwide, Absolutely. you know, and I, I really loved that she talked in this post about, just hanging in there because you never know what's around the corner. You know, I think that's such an important thing to remember too. I think that's right. And uh, luck sometimes finds you, what is it, preparation? (laughs) Success is luck meeting preparation. And there's there's bad luck in this business. And, you know, I've been through things where my publicist left the week before publication and you know all sorts of things happen to you I know people who had books out on 9-11 and nobody was buying so but then there's good luck too so if you just keep at it yeah keep swimming and and for the for the old jaded people like me I'd say and me yeah (laughs) You know, a wise woman once said that uh, a great book is a writer's triumph, a a best-selling book is a publisher's triumph. There are so many things publishers do behind the scenes that you don't even know about that help to sell a book. And I think there's this big myth, I'm going to say it, I'm going to be brave, that social media sells books And for some people, it really does. I'm not going to say it never does. But I think that social media gives writers the illusion of control. And when it all boils down to it, especially if you're traditionally published, there's a lot that goes on that you have no control over. So you've got control over the quality of your book. And so that is your triumph. Mm. That's what you've got to keep, keep in mind when things are tough, that you're a writer and no one can take that away from you. I love that, yeah. And that whole idea that the best way to sell your, your next book is to write it and to really make it as great as it can be. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to go back a little bit, Christine, and ask you if you can remember <laughs> putting you on the spot a bit. What was the <laughs> elevator pitch for Sisters of the Resistance? The one sentence, this is my book. Catherine Dior sister of the famous fashion designer was a member of the French resistance that sold it basically yeah because you've got you've got that id factor that glamour factor and you've got the fascination of this courageous woman who sacrificed so much and suffered so much Mm. so that juxtaposition is really I think enticing to a lover of historical fiction and especially, and you know, Paris, no one can deny Paris is a popular setting in historical fiction. Yeah, that captures it beautifully. 
Well, we are going to go on to have another chat in a minute. But <laughs> in the meantime, I'm pretty sure Sisters of the Resistance is out here on the 9th of July. Is that right? Oh, sorry. Yeah, 7th of July. Okay. So yeah. it'll all be, already be out when this goes to air. Where would you recommend people buy it and where can they find you online? Well, it should be available where all good books are sold. Booktopia, I know, has sent out their copies already. So my friend in New Zealand already has one. And of course, Dimmix. I mean, Dimmix has given me so much support over the years. So I have to give them a bit of a plug. Uh, Big W probably will have it. So yeah. Yeah. And are you at christinewells.com? christine-wells.com. And on Facebook as well. Yes. uh, And Instagram. I, I do a lot on Instagram, actually. Yeah. Well, it's been really lovely chatting to you about the book and about your writing process. And, you know, as I said, I absolutely loved it and I know it's going to go so well for you. So congratulations. Thanks very much, Pam. I appreciate it. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. On a personal writing note, my current release is All We Dream. If you'd like to know more about it or any of my books, you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs> <laughs>